Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a terrific variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device on planet Earth, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you happen to have. And here's a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get yourself a science fiction classic like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley or How About Dune by Frank Herbert or Neuromancer by William Gibson. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That's enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. These are the voices in your head. This is your semi-productive diversionary tactic. Today I'll be talking with Sarah Manguso. She's the author of a new book called The Guardians, an Elegy. It's available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It's about 100 pages long, and it's a knockout of a book. It's a, it's a heartbreaking memoir of sorts about the loss of a friend. And it's uh, it's just beautifully told. It's it's one of those books that, despite its relative brevity, uh, it weighs a lot. Uh, tremendous depth of thought and feeling. And even though it's a book of few words, nothing's missing. Nothing seems out of place. And it's written in these short poetic bursts, each of which feels like it was carved into the page with uh, with, with with a Swiss Army knife or something. If that makes any sense. So I find myself drawn to this kind of writing as a reader. Uh, I really like it. It suits me mentally it suits me emotionally and it's very hard to do well i think uh, it's the kind of writing that tricks you into believing it would be easy but uh, to achieve uh you know this kind of elevation and this kind of compression at the same time is no easy feat and when it's done well it's a joy to read and uh you know i should add that ever since i finished reading this book i find myself wanting to do something similar with the novel that i'm working on 
which is currently turning into a real grind. Uh, I seem to have hit, you know, some sort of wall at the 35,000 word mark. And I've been uh, working in more or less a linear fashion so far when it comes to plot. But lately, I find myself drifting a little bit away from that and thinking, uh, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to take a sledgehammer to this thing? Wouldn't it be interesting to shatter it into a thousand pieces and uh, cut away every last ounce of fat and then reassemble the remaining parts into some sort of odd collage? So we'll see what happens. And uh, I'm not entirely sure if my desire to pulverize my book is some sort of aesthetic thing uh, or actually an expression of latent rage brought about by the difficulties of the creative process. It's hard to say. It could be either or maybe both. It's like, you know, the urge to create and the urge to, uh, to destroy two sides of the same coin. Closely related, it would seem. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, otherwise, uh, not a lot to discuss before this one. I've been sort of racking my brain trying to think of what to say. You know, it's kind of heavy subject matter uh, that we're dealing with here. So, I don't want to create some sort of weird tonal dissonance where I'm, uh, I'm like joking around and trying to tell some kind of funny story uh, on the front end. And then the next thing you know, the interview starts and I'm talking to Sarah about her book and the tragic death of her friend, trying to make sense of the loss, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, that feels a little off to me, a little, uh, and possibly a little inappropriate. And I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that to Sarah, uh, or her book or, uh, or to you for that matter, because, uh, I feel like uh, maybe that might create an odd and uncomfortable listening experience where one minute you're feeling kind of lighthearted and possibly even laughing, uh, or enjoying a chuckle. And then the next minute you're deeply engaged with difficult subject matter Confronted by some of life's uh, heaviest and most vexing existential quagmires. So rather than do that, uh, rather than take that route, I, I've decided, I, I think, to just sort of sit here and talk about why I'm not doing it. To elucidate the circumstances uh, so that you're aware of what's going on and you're not wondering uh, why certain things are happening and certain things are not happening. Because I want you to be informed and, and I want you to feel comfortable. I want you to know... Uh, <laughs> I want you to know that you're, you're in the circle of trust. You're in a safe place. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to get out of the way and let this thing unfold naturally. This is me in conversation with Sarah Manguso, author of the new book, The Guardians. 
The Guardians are quite literally the people who outlived my friend Harris, and of which I am one, of course. And um, there have been, I mean, I've already fielded a couple of questions about why this isn't a traditional elegy in the sense that it, you know, centers around my friend and just provides a complete character sketch of my dead friend. And I guess my, my sort of roundabout answer is that it's, it, it, yes, it is an elegy in the sense that it memorializes someone who has died, but in a broader sense, and I think really the book is about the problem of what happens when you outlive somebody who you love. And so really the book is about the, the survivors, the guardians, the, the guardians who tried to take care of the person in life and who have then become the guardians of that person's memory. Um, so that was, I mean, that, that's really sort of conceptually how I would describe the book. And um, I guess in a more literal sense, I would just say that it was, the book itself is really the byproduct of my trying to just, uh, I hesitate to use this therapy word, but um, to process my my really strong feelings of grief after my friend committed suicide. Yeah, well, and it's, it's you know, it's uh, it was a particularly traumatic, uh, I mean, it's I've been through suicide grief, I've lost a friend, so I understand that. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's a particularly um, heavy kind of grief because there's so much mystery involved, you know, and it's hard to understand exactly why it happened, so you, you almost become kind of a detective working through your own memories when you lose someone that way. And, yes, that is exactly it. It's a detective story. Yeah, no, that's and that's how I felt. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, uh, not to reduce it, but it's you know, your book sort of functions that way, where you're as a reader, you're it's kind of like you're you're trying to uh, untangle this mystery, you know, uh, as you go. And you know, can you talk a little bit about um, you know how Harris died and and what uh, you know what happened to him? Sure. Um, well, un- unfortunately, there's there's very little that I know for sure, so I can probably tell you everything that I um, everything that I know. Um, Harris had no mental illness whatsoever until he was in his um, very late twenties or early thirties, and he was uh, a, a musician and a software programmer and a funny, awesome friend. And he had three psychotic breaks in his entire life. And um, his his death came about during the third one. Um, and he was safe in a hospital. Um, and again, this, this sort of uh, was another kind of... Um, another reason that I decided to title the book as I did, but he was, you know, being guarded safely in a locked psychiatric ward in a Manhattan hospital when he eloped. Um, he, he, you know, escaped from the ward, and nobody knows exactly how he did it. Um, he could have, his sister and I have talked about it, but she imagines that he did it rather nonchalantly, and I can kind of imagine him doing that too, just sort of finding a way to cut his um, his hospital bracelet off and approaching the front desk and saying, um, oh, could you open the door for me? And then if, you know, maybe the desk was being manned by a person who didn't notice or didn't recognize him as a patient, um, he just sort of waltzed out. And um, 
he was uh, he he eloped around noon, and he jumped in front of a train in the Bronx at about 10 p.m. Um, and all and so this this day, the day of his death, took place uh, a little over a week after I returned from having spent a year abroad, during which I hadn't seen him, and I really. I I'm I'm terrible at saving email. I delete everything, and my my friends who are very good self documentarians always scream at me about it. But I don't even know how many emails Harris and I exchanged during that last year of his life, because um, I think I just threw them all away. I mean, you know, you you don't, or maybe maybe I should, but I don't assume that um, my friends are all about to die and that I should take painstaking care to save every artifact of my friendship with them. Um, so I think it was on the eighth day after I returned to the States that Harris disappeared, and he was actually missing for three days before, he, you know, he was a John Doe at a morgue in the Bronx. And um, so three days after that, he was finally identified. And that, just those circumstances, my having been out of touch with him, his... Having been, oh, actually, it was two days before he was identified. Sorry, I misspoke. Um, you know, just, just, just his sort of having disappeared, completely disappeared off the grid. Um, it, at, at that kind of time um, in my life, it made it just very, very hard to integrate that event um, into the rest of the narrative of his, of his life as I understood it. And of course, suicide is always very difficult to integrate into the narrative of a person's life, but. It was just additionally um, strange, um, you know, because because of the, the um, because of the circumstances. Well, and then can you talk about like you know you said that he had three psychotic breaks in his adult life. Uh, what was the cause of this? I don't know, and I'm I, I you know I have, I've talked a lot with his parents, um, not not in order to research this book, but just because I enjoy a, a, a very good and very close relationship with his whole family and, and have for many years. Um, he was given a couple of different diagnoses, and I don't really think he was under observation for long enough or, you know, for, or consistently enough because he really wasn't that sick. You know, he wasn't consistently sick um, to receive a reliable diagnosis. So... Um, I think he presented with symptoms the three times that he was hospitalized, and those symptoms were treated um, with medicine and with therapy, uh, you know, other therapies. And he um, always recovered enough. Well, the the other two times he recovered sufficiently to be um, to be discharged. And I know he attended some um, outpatient therapy sessions for a little while, but. Um, you know, when you when you when you have these breaks and then return to you know conventional reality and are able to function, I think it must be really really strange and really hard. I've never been psychotic myself, but I, it must be very strange and very hard to to remember. Um, you know, there was a point at which I was wasn't part of this reality, and I need to practice staying in this reality and keep going to therapy and keep taking these medicines. And I can very easily understand why uh, 
an intermittently psychotic person would think, well, I mean, I I don't need to do this. I don't need to do this anymore. I'm really quite healthy. And, um, you know, like like many um, intermittently psychotic um, patients, Harris... um, I know made made that decision in between at least the first and second and second and third breaks. Um, so this is all to say that I mean he he received various diagnoses with um, you know schizoaffective disorder, schizotypal disorder might have been a couple of them. Um, but um, I'm I'm really less interested in what the the sort of you know um, DSM for official diagnosis might be um, than I am with just the the basic sort of um, um, you know, the way that we could talk about what happened to him according to first principles, like this happened and this happened and he may have done this, he may have felt this and so on. And and what about the word psychotic? Because I think like for listeners who might not be, you know, as familiar with uh, these kinds of oh. episodes, like it's a, it's, it's a loaded word and I think it's worth discussing sure. like what it means. Like when somebody has a psychotic break, like what does that mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the word psychopath is really thrown around a lot, and it, it irritates me when it's misused. Um, it, you know, okay, so, and, and I should say, I'm not an MD, I'm not a PhD, and I probably am about to misuse it myself, but as I understand it, um, psychosis involves uh, hallucination of some kind, whether it be visual or auditory or olfactory, um, just some some sensation or some cognition that something exists that does not. So you could smell a smell that's not there. Um, and I've read that, um, um, you know, schizophrenia often first presents as a series of olfactory hallucinations, which I find fascinating. Um, but, um, and, and, and Har- you know, Harris did not, Harris's um, pathology did not present in that way. As I understood it, and I had never had a, a frank and... Um, focused conversation with him about his symptoms. Um, we did talk about some symptoms, but I ne- he and I never really had a conversation about exactly what he hallucinated. Um, so this was all heard via his sister, but um, during his first psychotic break, which as I understand it is a term used to define or used to describe the experience of um, believing one is in a reality that's different from the conventional reality. So dur- during this first break, during which he first hallucinated, um, Harris saw a talking dog who told him to enter a house, and the door was unlocked. This was just a stranger's house on, on some street. The door was unlocked, and so... Um, and that just kills me. I mean, if the door hadn't been unlocked, then, I don't know, maybe... Maybe it would have it would have passed. Um, you know, he wouldn't have died. Um, of course, this is all this is all sort of conventional. Um, you know, uh, the conventional thoughts of a grieving person. But um, so this talking dog told him to enter a house, and he did. And the police were called, and that was that was sort of the event that led to his being committed uh, to a psychiatric ward for the first time. Um, and so these these psychotic breaks, as it were, these sort of departures from reality, um, happened only three times in his life. And the rest of the time, he was more or less um, occupying the same reality as as uh, the people around him. And I say more or less because there there were some other sort of vague symptoms that um, 
we as his friends and family could kind of observe from the outside and maybe imagine how they felt to Harris, but but not really. Um, from time to time, at least in my experience, it seemed that he could become distracted by something that wasn't um, that wasn't obvious to me. But this could happen, of course, you know, if someone's very distracted by something that he or she's working on or, I don't know, some emotional event. So it, he didn't seem so strange. Um, but in retrospect, of course, after somebody suicides, everything leading up to that event is then colored by the suicide. And so, of course, I'm rethinking all of these experiences that I had with him and wondering whether, you know, was that it? Was that, you know, was that the telltale moment at which the toggle switch clicked and he, he you know, it became, um, it became predetermined that he would kill himself? Um, so, yes, I guess all of this is to say that um, he, he seemed relatively normal, which is one of the great confusions that I thought about as I was writing this book. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I remember when, you know, uh, my friend who committed suicide, not only did he seem normal, but he was the guy among us who I think if you would have asked all of his friends who was the least likely to do something mm. like that, you know, he was like the the kind of happy-go-lucky and oh, uh, always, you know, always in a good mood and you know what I'm saying? Uh, and then in retrospect, you realize that some of it could have yeah. been a mask and maybe we were missing stuff because we were, especially because we were so young, but um, it, it can be frightening like, there's a couple of things that frighten me in, in hearing all this and, and kind of reflecting on my own experiences. It's frightening to think that you can be close to somebody and miss such critical things. Um, you know, that yeah. I feel, you know, I, it's a natural way to feel. And obviously you can't be too hard on yourself because uh, pretty much everybody missed it, you know, with my friend, you know. Um, but the other thing about it is, is when it comes to mental illness, uh, it's it's just terrifying to think that you can live uh, a, a relatively normal life up until the age of thirty, and all of a sudden start to have these these breaks. You know, like that's and, yeah. and the intensity of it, like seeing a talking dog, and uh, you know, it's almost it's, it doesn't even sound real, but it, this stuff happens. Uh, of course not. Yeah, it's, it sounds like something in a kind of you know m middling children's book. I mean, it's almost too obvious. Somebody starts hallucinating and, okay, talking animal of some kind. And uh, it, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as you were saying about your friend, after his, it was, it was, a, it was a guy? After yeah, yeah. He, yeah, after, after his death, you, you, you sort of, you look again at the memory of his good mood and, and think, oh, well, if somebody's in a good mood all the time, obviously it must be a mask. And then everything you think you believe about reality and about human behavior is called into question. Right. It makes, and, you, it makes, you, that, feel really, yeah, it makes you feel really dumb, you know? Like, oh, that's how I felt, you know? I, I, just, oh. I remember just feeling like, uh, like an idiot. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't 20 years old. So, Oh wow. You know, that was it's like, so clear in retrospect, isn't it? It's, yeah. so clear, it's so clear what, when things started going wrong, but it, you know, it, it, it takes a suicide to make it that clear, or at least in the case of, um, what happened to my friend Harris, it, it took his death to really shed a light on all of the, you know, sort of strange things that had been going on up to that moment. Has it changed how you relate to people? Like, has it changed how, how you relate to friends and family members uh, now, you know, in terms of how you... No. 
I think, yeah, that's a good question. I think it, it and this kind of breaks my heart to admit, but I, you know, you've made me just realize at this moment, I, it, it changed the way I related to people temporarily. And then gradually everything went back to normal again. Um, so, you know, after the trauma of the event, when it was still, you know, we were still kind of feeling the vibrations of it, um, Harris's friends and family, we were more careful with each other. We, t- I think we took better care of each other. We, we listened better to each other, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with this kind of gradual return to reality, um, because something similar happened after I became gravely ill in my twenties and for a while when I was when I was the sickest, I felt just I, I had this crystalline awareness of needing to be kind and needing to be patient with everyone I came in contact with and in a way I felt sort of perversely very, very happy when I was when I was sick and when I was thinking I you know, I might not walk again, I I might die and then once those threats faded, when I was walking again, when it was clear that my case wasn't terminal, probably was never going to become terminal. And what, what, um, what, just, what was your illness, may I ask? Oh, yeah. It's uh, an autoimmune disease, very similar to MS, um, and it affects the sensory and motor neurons. So I, when I'm having a relapse, I became paralyzed and... Um, I become numb. I have a lot of sensory problems, and really, it's just the weakness and paralysis that can um, affect the breathing muscles. And um, you know, eventually, if if things go uncorrected or untreated or or, or become untreatable, um, you know, you're just sort of in the ICU with a vent, and you you know, I, you, you just eventually die for the reasons that people in long-term ICU units die. Um, but that didn't happen to me. And and as things returned to normal, as I became more able to do all of the things that I need to do, I became the same asshole. You know, I just I stopped remembering to be extra kind to people, to be extra patient. And that sort of perverse happiness, I mean, it wasn't even a perverse happiness, but that that genuine happiness and that genuine, I I... I'll even use the word wisdom that I had found. It just, it was just gone. And, you know, I, and I became myself again. And that happened, um, like, you know, Harris died four years ago. And it was, it was after about two years that I stopped thinking about him every day. And now I, I think about him only from time to time. And I'm quite aware that I, I'm, I'm enjoying no special patience, no, you know, no special qualities that were triggered by this trauma anymore. I'm just, I'm just myself again. God, it's did, did I, something. Oh, go ahead. No, it's just, it's, it's so, uh, that's really true. <laughs> and it's, it, was that true for you after your yeah, friend's death? I think, you it, have, yeah. I, I think it's true for, I gotta believe it's true for everyone or almost everyone. Yeah. And, and like, I wonder, yeah, like, I mean, you, you would love to think that you could sustain that kind of epiphany or those kinds of moments. And like the way that I, uh, that I've experienced it. And I sometimes joke about this, but like, I always feel particularly good at a funeral in a weird way because things are heightened or, you know, it, it, and I, I don't mean to, to say that there's not sadness and there's not uh, great uh, pain involved with loss or anything like that. I'm just saying that like, 
the level of presence or the level of connectivity that I feel uh, seems to be really heightened, and that feels good, uh, you know. And yeah, and it all does feel good. and all the bullshit sort of just peels away uh, in those moments, and it's you wonder why, you know. Uh, then then like you say, you know, life goes on, and you wonder why it happens, and part of me thinks. Uh, you know, I guess it's human nature. And then maybe it's like uh, also a self-protective thing where, you know, if you did think about Harris 10 times a day, uh, as I'm sure you did in the, the immediate weeks and months after his death, uh, you know, eventually that becomes uh, difficult on you, you know, and it, 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 it's an, it, it, it impairs you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe, yeah, maybe human beings, maybe human beings yeah. can't sustain that because it would actually be, uh, you know, impossible to live that way. It might be possible to live that way if one were in a, a very protected community. I'm, I'm imagining maybe um, people who take religious orders can can survive having that degree of empathy or people, I don't know, people who are living in unusual circumstances, but I'm not. You know, I just, you know, I live in Brooklyn. I, you know, I get irritated at people on the subway, uh, yeah, I get irritated at people in restaurants who talk too loudly. You know, I just, you know, I can't, uh, I, I, I just don't have the wherewithal, if that's the word I'm looking for. I, I don't have the, I don't have the capacity to, to sustain that kind of empathy. Um, and there was, so you just made me think of something else that happens at a funeral. There's the feeling, or after something terrible happens, there's the feeling I always have not just the feeling of intense human connection that you were describing, but I also have the feeling that, you know, things are so bad now, like, I feel almost relieved because at least for a little while they won't get worse. Right. And I write about this a little bit in the book. Um, I, I, I think it was... Um, it, was about, it was five years before Harris died. Um, a mutual friend of ours died. Uh, and I, I described, I remember being with Harris very soon after Victor died and, um, not his real name. And he, the experience of this, of this sudden death, not a suicide, but a very sudden death, um, colored all, it, it just, it, it colored all of, all of our experiences over the next few months. We were, we were all pretty young and, there was this shared belief, even though we didn't talk about it very much, that now that now that Victor was dead, like that was it, like that was our tragedy quota for a while, and we didn't have to worry that something terrible was going to happen because that had already happened, and it was so statistically unlikely that you know a bunch of other our other friends were going to die that we could we could just relax. <laughs> um, and, and oh, and, and just one more one more kind of perverse example of this that's not in the book. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend a very long time ago who had dated a woman with my name, a woman named Sarah, who had died. And while I was dating him, I thought, I am fucking immortal because there's just no way that a man could date two women named Sarah who, who would die. You know, <laughs> and I just felt, I felt... I felt great, and of course, you know that mine. It's it's it. My name has nothing to do with it. It would have been a strange story, but it it's it was no less. I was no less likely to die at that moment than I was now or at any other moment. 
Well, and um, it's, it's, maybe just, not any other, but. it's just amazing how people will look for meaning in things. You know what I'm saying? Especially when those meanings uh. are, are convenient <laughs> and have like a, uh, you know, a palliative effect or whatever, where, a, um, you know, they, they make you feel better. They make you feel immortal. They make you feel like you're safe. You know, so. Yeah. I mean, and, and I guess I'm always looking for those moments, those, those excuses or those um, sort of specious proofs that I'm safe, at least for a little while, or that my friends are safe, at least for a little while. Well, uh, I want to hear, you know, I want to hear you talk about, uh, you know, the better times that you had. Like, how did you and Harris meet? Like, what was the history of your friendship? Oh, the history of our friendship. <laughs> that makes it sound so official. Uh, well, we first met because one of my college friends had gone to high school with Harris, and this college friend um, lived in his father's apartment uh, on campus during the summers because his father was a professor. And um, what, and his father college? had... It was Harvard. Oh, you were at Harvard. And, uh, yeah. And uh, I, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to not um, give away uh, who, who, you know, who the professor was because to this day he did. He does. I don't believe he knows that, you know, eight to twelve college kids were crashing in his, you know, sort of nice uh, apartment in Cambridge, and you know, you know, doing all of the things that college kids do in an apartment over the summer when they're living for free. Um, so uh, we were living there, and then uh, and so my college pal invited um, you know several of his high school friends to crash there too, and um, some of us had jobs, some of us had you know jobs for part of the summer, some of us had jobs for the whole summer, and some of us didn't work, some of us worked on art, you know it's just it's just the usual kind of mishmash of um, you know nineteen to twenty one year olds figuring stuff out. And Harris and I were the only two in the house who had sort of, you know, nine-to-five jobs. Harris was working as a software programmer, and I had this sort of unforgiving internship at a um, publishing company in their textbook wing. I was I basically spent the summer summarizing accounting textbooks um, for, you know, comparative analyses so that the the publisher could, I don't know. It, it was just busy work. I, I had no idea why I was doing it. And in fact, I never wanted to work in publishing again after that experience. So so that was one of the good things that came out of the summer. And uh, another one was that I met Harris. And we didn't become close uh, immediately, but I, you know, I, I knew immediately that he was a very gentle person. And in fact, and, 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 and that it almost it, it's all, it almost makes me angry because there's it, it's so easy to say that oh my dead friend was a very gentle you know like an unusually empathic person but Harris actually was he actually was and it was um, immediately uh, obvious to anybody who met him within you know the first conversation one one had with him um, so that's how we met so that was in the mid 90s and then after we all graduated we were all more or less the same age. Um, Yes, Harris and I were, and, and our mutual friends were the same age. We all moved to New York, and um, Harris's mom, who was a real estate agent, found us an apartment in Lower Manhattan. Um, and you know, apartment. It was a it was a photographer's former studio, and it was just a giant open raw loft. And we, you know, somewhat overambitiously thought, oh yeah, we can build this out because you know we went to college, and <laughs> and so there are some bits in the book about how we. You know, we sort of 
basically failed to to build out the loft. And so we lived in these sort of cubic like office something that looked like office cubicles instead of actual rooms for a very long time. And and it was this sort of um, you know this. It, this physical intimacy of basically looking, living in a, a giant room, these sort of pens that were not, um, you know, soundproof at all. So yeah, so wait, us... this this begs the question. Oh, go ahead. Like yeah, when somebody's having sex, like what what was going on? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, um, people either had sex quietly or um, or not. And, uh, you know, there, there were, there were some roommates who never had sex in the apartment. There were some roommates who did it very surreptitiously. And then there were some who just didn't give a fuck. Right. Um, I, I never had sex in the apartment to my knowledge. No. Yeah. No, I never did. Um, well, wait, no. Oh yeah. It, it, it gets complicated <laughs> because then of course, you know, with all of our pheromones flying around, um, I, I, I wound up, um, having a, a, a small affair with one of the roommates, not Harris, um, and, and so, um, again, this is all sort of what happens when, you know, you're, you're young, you're middle class, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're able to kind of live in a raw loft and enjoy this sort of pretense of, um, genteel poverty, which is what a lot of us were doing. Um, but, you know, Harris had a job, I had a job. Most of us had jobs at this point, and it was living in that apartment that really brought not just me and Harris closer together, but all, you know everybody in the group. And I, I write a little bit about this apartment as uh, just a, a social center for. It wasn't. It wasn't just the, the four roommates and their friends, but there were like a, there were a couple of degrees of separation that radiated out and it just seemed, it seemed as if a lot was going on socially in this apartment between about 96 and 2001. And then I think, I think some sort of friends of friends of friends took over the lease and um, stayed there for a while. Um, it's on Chambers street. Um, so for those of you who know that neighborhood in New York, um, it's it's become completely unaffordable, and I think in fact this the, the uh, building that has this apartment is now just these beautifully renovated, um, uh, you know, single family apartments that are millions of dollars. So it you know it, it this happens in New York all the time, but it it really underscores the fact that that chapter is just over. Well, yeah, young people can't even barely live in, you know, in Manhattan anymore. It seems like unless they're they're of means. Yeah, there are like some nooks and crannies. I don't know where they are, but there all there always are a few nooks and crannies where where you can live. Um, but you know, most of us were old enough to just give up around the turn of the millennium, and we you know we all moved to the outer boroughs, um, and uh, and so yeah, many of us moved to Brooklyn, and so Harris and I lived in you know various neighborhoods in Brooklyn, but we. We, we remained very close um, after having lived together on Chamber Street. Well, and you guys were, I mean, you guys had a, a, you know, a very close friendship, like a really intimate relationship, but you guys never dated. No, we never dated. Never, yeah, came, never, never, never came up? Like, I mean, you, you kind of address it in the book. Yeah. It just seems like one of those friendships that, like, I mean, there was, I don't know, it, it's, it's odd when men and women have platonic, you know, friendships, yeah. but, uh, you know. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was odd. Yeah. Yeah. 
So can oh, I'm sorry. Fin- I'm going to let you finish your sentence. Well, no, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to discuss that doesn't really get spoken about all that often. You know, these friendships that develop between uh, a hetero man and a hetero woman or whatever the orientation is. But in this particular case, it's a, it's a man and a woman and you're really close friends and you have this level of emotional intimacy. But for some reason, it never crosses over. I guess like you, you guys just I mean, were you attracted to each other? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it just becomes this weird Yeah, no, I do know what you're saying. Yeah, it's this category of relationship that, um, you know, many people have, many, I think I can say many young people have, and it's kind of exciting, at least um, maybe in the beginning or maybe at, at some point for one of the people or both of the people or maybe... Or maybe, uh, you know, for, for both of them at different times during the relationship. But, yeah, there's always this threat or this, this sort of this question of, you know, whether this will become, you know, a relationship that's more like the way, you know, hetero men and hetero women are supposed to interact. You know, they're supposed to make babies. Um, and I, you know, I... It's it's again. I mean, I'm very I'm self conscious only because it's so easy to say, um, you know, well, the relationship I had with my dead hetero male friend was special. It wasn't like the other relationships I had with hetero male friends over the years. Um, and so, and so I don't I don't want to cheapen it by sort of just making that claim. But um, I will just I go, I'll go back to my earlier claim that you know Harris was an unusual person, and even living in that loft with a bunch of guys, all of whom were, you know, trying to make it with a bunch of girls and, you know, all of whom were constantly talking about uh, women. Um, I, I was the only woman living in the apartment for any sustained length of time who wasn't, you know, officially a girlfriend of one of the guys. Um, I was this sort of, uh, you know, this satellite uh, feminine entity living in a corner of the apartment. And so, you know, I, I, I bore witness to a lot of, you know, just kind of, kind of, you know, trash talking that guys do about, um, you know, about gals. And Harris never said an unkind thing about a woman. And it, it didn't strike me until really I was writing the book and trying to remember bits of dialogue. And, you know, I, I remember, I remember goofy stuff that happened in the apartment. And I remember things that our other roommates said about, you know, women specifically or in general, but I couldn't remember a damn thing I couldn't remember anything bad that Harris ever said. And that really, it disappointed me because I know it would kind of, you know, strengthen the feeling of intimacy that a reader would have to see that Harris had some bad qualities. And there's this section in which I try to remember all of his bad qualities. And the worst thing I remembered was that he forgot to flush the toilet once when somebody's mom was visiting the apartment. (laughs) And it's like, he never, he never said anything terrible. Um, and so, um, and so, what does that say about, my, you know, the nature of our relationship? I, I just really liked him, um, and we—I don't know. I mean, there, there are more, there are more, I guess, analytic explanations or arguments for why we got along so well. Um, I have this. Um, I have this conviction that I get along really well with composers for some, you know, like neurological reason. I don't know what it is, um, but I just, 
I always immediately love composers, and I always immediately get along with composers when I meet them. Um, and Harris, of course, you know, one of his one of his identities was, um, you know, composer. So that could have had something to do with it. But it was just one of those golden friendships. Yeah, you can't. You almost can't explain them. You know, like how when there's that ease of communication and that weird, uh, yeah. like you, you mean neurochemistry, whatever you want to call it, because yeah, yeah. you know, I understand. I think everybody has, or hopefully everybody has at least a few of those or one or two. Oh, yeah, I certainly do hope that. Um, and you know, it may be that the, the you know the specter of um, you know potential sex was hanging over the relationship the entire time, and that's one of the things that lent it that golden quality, but I don't think it, I don't, I didn't feel it. I was never uncomfortable. I never worried that, oh no, shit, we're going to have to have sex at some point. It's just going to be inevitable. And then, you know, it, um, it was just, it was, it, it, it never felt threatening. I was never, and it, and I should say that, um, you know, in many of my prior romantic relationships, at some point I always felt up, oh, Okay, well, it's now inevitable that we that we you know go to bed, so we might as well just do it now. Um, and uh, you know, I've since grown out of this um, tendency, but um, I never felt that with Harris. We just we just laughed our asses off and went about our day. There was no there was no worry about about that whole sex thing. Well, but I mean, there there is like you know uh, parts of the book where you write really uh, candidly, and I think with with uh, great humor. Uh, about uh, Harris's penis. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, Harris's penis is an important part of the story. Yeah, I mean, talk about People that a little know. bit. People should know. Yeah, we want to... <laughs> okay, sure, yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, Harris is... Uh... <laughs> this is, this is a, a, one of the relatively goofier sections of the book was a remembrance of Harris's penis. Um, and uh, it's significant only because um, again, when we were living in this raw loft and nobody had a ceiling on their office cubicle where they slept, you know, we, we knew a lot of stuff about each other. And uh, Harris um, was rumored, I, n- I never saw the penis, um, which, which is another sort of a important um, plot point, um, but um, he was rumored to have this incredible penis. And um, this was because, you know, Harris had a lot of girlfriends at this at this time, Um and, you know, I mean, and other times too, but, um, well, of he had a lot of girlfriends and I guess one of them, yeah, right. I know. Well, in retrospect, of course he did, but, um, I guess one of them talked to another one because I mean, there were just no appropriate boundaries in this apartment, but, you know, among the roommates or among the roommates, lovers or, any, or anybody. And I, I guess one of them confirmed with another that, um, and I don't even remember how this came about. I could be fabricating this whole, um, course of events, but anyway, it just became part of part of like the ethos of the apartment was is that that you know Harris was the one with the amazing penis. And, and if you're going to have rumors spread about you, that's what you want to have happen I as a guy. No, I, mean, I know. Yeah. And thank goodness Harris's father, after after he read the book in manuscript, um, you know, sort of said something re- really lovely to me. If I'm like, well, well, you know, I guess my boy's being uh, being well remembered in print. That's right. Um, but yeah, no, it's true. It, I, I had to include it. Um, I had to include it. It was it was somehow you know the, Harris could have 
taken that reputation and and used it for evil, but instead it just um it ju- it just it just made him more lovable. He wielded his um, penis as a force for good. I like that. Yeah. He did. He did. Um it it just it 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 did nothing to chip away at his general kindness. Um you know, his his, his general kindness not just toward women but you know, toward humans. Um and it uh and 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 so in the book I say he and I periodically talked about his penis as though it were an amazing restaurant in another town. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it became this joke like, um, God, you know, I, he, he would say, I wish I could show you my penis. I mean, it really is, it really is quite something. And then I would say, God, I know, I, I, like, I, I hear it's just incredible. But, and then we, you know, would sort of say, well, you know, but if I showed you my penis, that would be weird. I mean, it is, we, we had, we we had very permeable boundaries, but at least we were aware, at some um, you know on some level that if I saw his penis, that that that, that would kind of be crossing a line, and so we were just always able to you know return to this basic problem that like you know I I knew him really well I should I should know this other amazing thing about him but um, but uh, you know I never saw it. I never saw it, and so it you know retains this this aura of mystery <laughs> right. for me at least. Sure, sure. So uh, I also you know I want to talk about the writing of this book um, because writing about this stuff, writing is difficult no matter what, but especially when you're writing about grief and you know you, suicide grief and the mystery of it and uh, the loss of a very close friend, like all that emotional um, difficulty, working through it feeling like you you have enough perspective to write about it i I imagine uh you have to get to a point where you give yourself permission to try and then you also have to think about and consider the feelings uh of friends and family and and family in particular harris's family and how they would feel about you uh writing the book like how did you approach that part of it um how did i approach the um just just managing the feelings of Harris's family well i mean yeah did you did you speak to them before you wrote the book did you come to a point i mean did you try to write this and fail because you were still too emotional do, do you know what i'm saying like you almost have to be at a remove oh, yeah. and and the book has such a lovely yeah. perspective like it's such a clear-eyed view of things and that doesn't happen by accident i imagine there's trial and error i also imagine that um arriving at that kind of perspective uh, is a function of time. You know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, in order for us to be able to write about things in a way that is, uh, dispassionate and, and that's not to say that there's not passion in, you know, the way that you approach. No, I understand what you mean. Yeah, I understand like, what you mean. And thank you for the compliment, um, first, but, um, in, you know, in fact that, that, level of temporal remove is something that I worried a lot about as I was writing the book because I didn't really write it with too much remove. Um, and, you know, it's something I, I'm worried about even, even now. Um, and something I wrote about in the book, which is what if I had waited 10 more years or what if I had waited till the very end of my life? And I, I had this sort of, you know, very much wider perspective than I had at the moment that I was writing about it. Um, part of the book was written really when I was, when I was grieving, when I was actively grieving. And I, I think writing the book was at least part of what allowed me to stop actively grieving. Um, so the, the book, um, you know, unlike 
my previous memoir, which was written at, at many years removed from the events that I was writing about, this, this diagnosis with the autoimmune disease, um, this book was really written when I was quite in it. And um, I, I don't remember when I first began talking with Harris's family about my potentially writing and then potentially publishing a book about Harris, but it was pretty early in the process. And Harris's parents and oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's interesting because you know, like I wondered if you like you just wrote the thing and then presented it to them, but you actually communicated with them early and said, "I'm thinking of doing this" or "I'm starting to do this." What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, as I said, I don't remember exactly how the conversation started, but I mean, it became integral to my actually making the book. And my my point person with the family was Harris's sister, who's close to close to us in age and um she's also an artist and she she anticipated that a lot of Harris's friends you know a lot of us who who make art of one kind or another um would probably make art about Harris or about Harris's death or about um you know this the just the specifics of our own experiences of Harris's death um, and so his sister, Mishka, read, I think, three drafts of my book. And um, his mother and father read um, several excerpts that uh, I sent. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to make them read the entire thing over and over. And so I sent them excerpts just to kind of fact check. And they were very, very helpful and very open and... Um, you know, really helped me make the book as accurate and as good as I could. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really, I, I guess I could say I'm, I'm really lucky that they were so open to the idea of my writing the book, but I, I knew they would be. I mean, I just, I, I knew them well enough that they, I, I knew that they were open-minded enough to have this book about their son in the world as an object that, that strangers would read. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, and I knew that they would, they would support me just because they're, they're supportive of me period. Um, you know, in, in anything that I wanted to do. Um, so that, um, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty much, um, how Harris's family got involved. And as for the writing of the book in general about, you know, sort of the basic difficulty of writing about mysteries that can't, you know, sufficiently be solved. Um, the book, I mean, it, it, as you said, you know, it's always hard to write anything. It's not, it's not, you know, that that uh, death is specifically hard to write well or clearly about. Um, although, I guess, of course, it is. Um, I, I, I can say, um, with regard to the the process or the experience of writing the book. Um, all, all I did is what I always do, which is to just try to write as clearly as possible according to, um, no, well, I mean, I was going to say according to first principles, but that's a little lofty. Um, I, I just wanted to write as clearly as I could what I knew to be true about everything that I could remember that was at least tangentially related to Harris's life and Harris's death. And... Um, I, I wrote the book the way I wrote my previous book. I just kind of I, I write in maybe uh, in, in 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 
text chunks of maybe a hundred to a few thousand words, each about one discrete thing. And then I, I kind of knit them together um, to yeah. try to hit at some kind of uh, continuity or, or some, some sense of continuity of the narrative. And, um, you know, of course, the, the book is very discontinuous and has a lot of um, white space on the page and a lot of breaks because there were just a lot of things that I, I couldn't tie together. I mean, there, there, it really is just a narrative full of holes. Well, but I mean, that's, I mean, it is. And so the, that particular style or that particular structure, uh, or narrative device or whatever you call it, it serves it perfectly. And I was curious about that because, uh, I found myself, like I was talking to a friend about this book after reading it. And I was like, my God, you know, like, it's like all these short bursts and each one is like this, like perfectly crafted, uh, thing that just sort of knocks the wind out of you, like each one. You know? Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's really beautifully done, and I just I kept trying to imagine how you had worked on it and how you, you know, I just I just imagined you working on these short little pieces, and then having a bunch of them, and then kind of uh, it's almost like a collage or a mosaic. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I should point out that like I don't really know how to write any other way. It wasn't it wasn't some like. Um, you know, it wasn't that I had this brilliant decision like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write this discontinuous narrative and, and um, you know, purposefully leave lots of stuff out. I mean, I, I really just, I tried to make it as continuous a narrative as I could, and I, you know, I knew I would make it, you know, I knew my, my talent and my memory were insufficient to the task, and so this is the form that came out instead. Well, and how do you, how long do you work? I mean, when you're working on one chunk or discrete uh, piece or whatever you want to call it of the book. Uh, like how, how long does it take you to perfect one? Like they're just so that cause you know, for people who haven't read the book yet or haven't uh, read your writing, uh, you know, they're so compressed and, um, that, you know, these pieces, like you say, can be like 150, 250, 300 words, but, uh, they weigh a lot. And I'm curious Aww. as to how you arrive at that. You know, how do you arrive I, at that sort of uh, gravity? Like, how long does it take you? Uh, again, I mean, I, I'm sort of, um, I, I have to bashfully admit that my records are really not good enough for me to even have any of the information that would be required to answer your questions efficiently. It's, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, for one thing, I don't do drafts the way that, say, like some of my friends who write long books, like, like a, like a long novel. Um, you know, my friend Julie writes a, a draft and then she edits a draft and it's like the second draft and then she saves, a, you know, the second draft and then she does another draft and it's the third draft. And it's just so orderly and, and be, you know, it just seems so beautifully orderly to me, but, um, I'm just kind of all over the place. Um, my attention span sucks. So I, I, you know, I'm, I basically like open a file and like, no, you know, noodle around with, uh, a, a few hundred words, and you know, I I, I do it in, in very very with a very intense focus that I find it impossible to sustain for very long. And then I you know kind of get up and dust something. I mean, I, I'm dusting right now, for example. Um, you know, I I just I always have to be doing something very attentively, but I just I don't have that kind of you know Buddhist focus, or you know I should just say focus to sustain it for very long. Um, and so, and, and again, because I don't really keep, 
careful records of, of drafts or anything like that. Um, I, I only ever have the one draft um, on my on my hard drive. And again, I know this is bad because like if anyone ever wants to like buy my papers or something, um, my friend Tim just has papers bought for like a hundred thousand dollars or something by some library. Um, I'm just, I just don't have any papers. Like I, I, I have nothing. Like I, it's just too overwhelming to me to to save different versions of a piece of writing. So I just kind of, you know, I dip in, I dip out, I dip in, I dip out, and then eventually I start working with larger, larger sections of the book, and then eventually, you know, and then after that, I I start kind of reading, reading the whole thing through. Although I should say, you know, reading the whole thing through, it's a hundred page book. It's it's really like well yeah and I, like want, a, I want to talk about that oh. like the length of it because um, I love I love reading short works like that like I enjoy it because you can get through them in one sitting it feels whole I mean if it's if it's executed well but it also you know again uh, you know it it felt like uh, it felt like a good decision considering the subject matter. Like, did you think of it that way at all? Like, I can't go on for too long with this. Like, I need to say what I need to say, but I need to say it quickly or efficiently. Or is it just what happened? You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, you know, I you you put that really well. I know what you're saying. It's um, well, I don't, I don't, I don't think I believe that there's an ideal form suited to a particular subject. I think you can. I think there are there are good books about about everything and it and all sorts of forms. I mean, it's like what what's the best book about or what's the best book about grief well you know there's peter hunter's book um a sorrow beyond dreams which is like 70 pages and then there's mark doty's book dog years which is several hundred pages and they're they're both perfect books i mean they're just oh they're they're two of my favorite um books of of you know first person mourning um and all i can say is that in my case i you know, whatever I'm writing about, I tend to write very short just because I, I mean, it's a combination of just preferring to read um, bits of text, uh, to, to use your term, with, with great gravity that weigh a lot. And because, like, it, it's just, it's fun. I, I enjoy the process of distillation. I, I enjoy compression. Um, it's fun for me. Uh and, and so it's just this thing that I like to do to, to try to see how few words I can use to make, you know, or, or, or to try to make the reader feel what I want the reader to feel. Um, so, I mean, I just, I've been writing shorter and shorter. Um, well, that's not entirely true. I started out as a poet writing incredibly short poems and then I started writing sentences later on. But, uh, you know, this book is uh, almost... It's it's a little over half the length of my previous book, um, you know, which which is sort of it's sort of a, a desolating. Uh, a, I don't know. It, it it made me feel a little bit as if I'd failed because I had this idea that as I became a more mature writer, I would start writing longer, but you know, like grown up length books, not just <laughs> these like you know very 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 short books, but. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I get it now. Like that, that's how I write. Um, you know, some people write 8,000 word short stories, uh, about bad marriages. Some people are, you know, everybody, everybody does a thing. And, um, I don't, 
in the past, I, I felt a little bit of a sense of obligation to try to write in ways that didn't come naturally to me because it seemed necessary to, to becoming, a, you know, a, a real writer. But I know, you know, I'm tired now. Like, I don't feel that way anymore. I'm just going to write the way I'm going to write, which is in short bursts um, that will have varying levels of continuity or discontinuity with the short bursts that surround them in whatever book it is. And it'll be 100 pages or, I don't know, my goal is to get to 300 pages at some point. But, you know, that will probably never happen um, just based on my output and based on the way I'm writing about my, um, well, based on the new project that I'm working on. So, And what is that? It's just what to do. Oh, it's... um. It's a, it's another essay, um, and it's about the basic anxiety that I have that I forget so much of what happens to me. Um, me too. And so, sort of, oh, you have that? Oh my God! Yeah, no, I mean, talk about oh. it all the time on this show. Like I forget everything. <gasps> and uh, oh my God! Well, know, do you okay. keep a diary? No, but let me let me tell you. I'll just give you an example. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like right before we got on this call. I like made myself go into your book and and look up Harris's name because I was panicked that I was going to forget it, like stuff like oh, that. Wow. I get I get panicked about it, you know. Like I just and I just read the book. I just finished it, you know, day before yesterday. So it immediately, even something as like heartfelt and moving as this, uh, my brain doesn't. Well, hold the name it. doesn't. Well, I the know. name doesn't matter as much. But no, I I get I get that. Um, my my anxiety. Well, at least, I mean, I have many anxieties, but this one that I'm trying to write about is a basic anxiety that I forget, I forget my autobiography. And so it's kind of evolved to the point where I'm, I'm now writing about the basic failure that's destined for every autobiographer because you can't ever write a complete autobiography because you can't observe yourself at every moment because then it would just sort of, it would get to the point where you're just writing, I'm sitting writing, I'm sitting here writing, I'm sitting at the writing desk writing, and then nothing would happen to you and you would just go crazy. And and so, um, you know, I I do keep a diary. I've been keeping a daily diary for 20 years and it's now 750,000 words. And I periodically dip into it. It's, it's on the computer. So it's easy to kind of, you know, like go to, what was I doing in 98 on this day? And I, I keep looking at, okay, I don't do it that much. I'm not that self-obsessed, but you know, from time to time I'll, I'll look at an early entry and find this account of something that I had completely forgotten that had nonetheless happened to me, like important stuff. Like, uh, you know, like, like, like these really, um, these really intimate exchanges with other people. And I'd completely forgotten the exchange and almost completely forgotten the people. And I'm just, I, I'm, I'm really interested in a way that our brains are, you know, basically neurologically ill-prepared, badly designed to remember what ongoing time feels like. We can remember, we can remember these discrete events, um, but all of the all of that sort of nothing between the discrete events gets edited out. And so the book is called well, it's not a book, but I mean this this essay is called Ongoingness, and it's just it's about the basic like the autobiographer's anxiety that um, it's impossible not just to perceive ongoing time, but it's impossible to record ongoing time. Wow. I, I realize it's very abstract, but it, it's basically just about another existen- existential problem 
No, another, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm another, another, another anxiety. I'm reading it for um, sure. Let me know when it's done. Well, <laughs> oh yeah, it'll be about four years uh, before. <laughs> I don't know. I'm giving, I'm giving myself four years to write it because I don't know. It took four years to write this last one. So it's but oh, God. Knows. That's interesting. So four years to get to the hundred pages uh, that you wanted. Yeah. But how many pages yeah. total did you write? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you see that? Yeah, no, that's the thing. Like, I since I don't save drafts, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't. It's very rare for me to cut and save a piece of text. Like, I'll, I'll just cut it. Like, right. it'll just be gone. You right. know, and and you know, I know that's horrifying and bad and blah blah blah. But like, I I am so I'm very easily overwhelmed by too much content, and so I just think if I delete a bunch of pages and I really need them, then I'll, you know, they'll, they'll come back. Like I'll, I'll write them again in some better way or, or maybe in the same way, who knows? Um, so I, I really have no idea how many pages I've, I've, I cut along the way to get to this, this, you know, sort of tolerable hundred, which is too bad because I love it when, again, like in, Usually novelists say, like, oh, I cut 800 pages from that book. And it's like, oh, wow, it's so thrilling to know that it's okay to do that. Um, it was less than 800. I'll, I'll just I'll just say that. It's um, like a, like a four-to-one ratio? Is that safe to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I Yeah, I just don't know. Well, it's a beautiful book, and uh, I just I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come uh, and to, or, you know, to talk with me about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best with it. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Okay, guys, there you go. That's it. That's the program. That's Sarah Manguso. Go get her book. It's called The Guardians. It's out from FSG. Uh, on the top end of the show, I called it Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, it might be Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think it might be Giroux. Anyway, it's a great book. Uh, you can read it in one sitting. And uh, if you want to find Sarah on the web, she's at sarahmanguso.com. That's Sarah with an H. And she also has a Facebook page. Don't forget, this show is on Twitter. You can follow it, at, uh, and the handle is at OtherPeoplePod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. Uh, it's available for free at iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe there if you haven't done so already. And if you want to email me for any reason, the address is letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks to Valley Jones for the transitional music. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, you know, final thoughts. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like I'll be brief and, uh, you know, kind of as an homage to Sarah's book. Uh, not a lot has been happening. I've been working a lot. I've been staring at a flashing cursor. I've been frustrated and trying to uh, not be frustrated or at least sit through the frustration and fight the good fight. Uh, I went to Disneyland last weekend. Uh, that's sort of interesting. I did that with some friends. We all took our kids. There was a lot of uh, humanity. There was some carnival food. There was a lot of waiting in long lines. And uh, my daughter was terrified of Mickey Mouse. And when I say terrified, I mean really terrified. And clutching me uh, so tightly that her, her little fingers uh, dug into my neck and uh, almost drew blood. Which uh, I found sort of heartwarming. Uh, and somewhat painful, but also very funny, and uh, which my wife gave me some shit about, because uh, my daughter was really frightened <laughs> of this uh, giant corporate plushie, and uh, which in retrospect might be a good sign. You know, like maybe this means that uh, she's a prodigy. You never know. 
So, uh, yeah, that's all I've got. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Please remember that the entire plot of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came to Robert Louis Stevenson in a dream. And uh, please remember that D.H. Lawrence liked to get completely nude and climb mulberry trees. True story. Uh, I'll be back with another program very soon just for you. And, uh, yeah, that's it. I think that's it. I think that this is the end of the program. Uh, I think that this is the moment when I'm supposed to say goodbye. Uh, but I seem to be having trouble figuring out exactly the right way to do that. So maybe I should just do one of those, uh, you know, cold endings where I cut myself off mid sentence. And, you know, maybe that might be a good idea and kind of a clever way to. (laughs) 